Chapter 2, Part 2 of The Subjection of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. The Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill. Chapter 2, Part 2. But how, it will be asked, can any society exist without government? In a family, as in a state, some one person must be the ultimate ruler. Who shall decide when married people differ in opinion? Both cannot have their way, yet a decision one way or the other must be come to. It is not true that in all voluntary association between two people, one of them must be absolute master, still less that the law must determine which of them it shall be. The most frequent case of voluntary association, next to marriage, is partnership in business, and it is not found or thought necessary to enact that, in every partnership, one partner shall have entire control over the concern, and the other shall be bound to obey his orders. No one would enter into partnership on terms which would subject him to the responsibilities of a principal with only the powers and privileges of a clerk or agent. If the law dealt with other contracts, as it does with marriage, it would ordain that one partner should administer the common business as if it was his private concern, that the other should only have delegated powers, and that this one should be designated by some general presumption of law, for example, as being the eldest. The law never does this, nor does experience show it to be necessary that any theoretical inequality of power should exist between the partners, or that the partnership should have any other conditions than what they may themselves appoint by their articles of agreement. Yet it might seem that the exclusive power might be conceded with less danger to the rights and interests of the inferior, in the case of partnership, than in that of marriage, since he is free to cancel the power by withdrawing from the connection. The wife has no such power, and even if she had, it is almost always desirable that she should try all measures before resorting to it. It is quite true that things which have to be decided every day, and cannot adjust themselves gradually, or wait for a compromise, ought to depend on one will. One person must have their sole control. But it does not follow that this should always be the same person. The natural arrangement is a division of powers between the two each being absolute in the executive branch of their own department, and any change of system and principle requiring the consent of both. The division neither can nor should be pre-established by the law, since it must depend on individual capacities and suitabilities. If the two persons chose, they might pre-appoint it by the marriage contract, as pecuniary arrangements are now often pre-appointed there would seldom be any difficulty in deciding such things by mutual consent, unless the marriage was one of those unhappy ones in which all other things, as well as this, become subjects of bickerings and dispute. The division of rights would naturally follow the division of duties and functions, and that is already made by consent, or at all events not by law, but by general custom, modified and modifiable at the pleasure of the persons concerned. The real practical decision of affairs, to whichever may be given the legal authority, will greatly depend, as it even now does, upon comparative qualifications. 
the mere fact that he is usually the eldest will in most cases give the preponderance to the man at least until they both attain a time of life at which the difference in their years is of no importance there will naturally also be a more potential voice on the side whichever it is that brings the means of support inequality from this source does not depend on the law of marriage but on the general conditions of human society as now constituted the influence of mental superiority either general or special and of superior decision of character will necessarily tell for much it always does so at present and this fact shows how little foundation there is for the apprehension that the powers and responsibilities of partners in life as of partners in business cannot be satisfactorily apportioned by agreement between themselves they always are so apportioned except in cases in which the marriage institution is a failure things never come to an issue of downright power on one side and obedience on the other except where the connection altogether has been a mistake and it would be a blessing to both parties to be relieved to be relieved from it some may say that the very thing by which an amicable settlement of differences becomes possible is the power of legal compulsion known to be in reserve as people submit to an arbitration because there is a court of law in the background which they know that they can be forced to obey but to make the cases parallel we must suppose that the rule of the court of law was not to try the cause but to give judgment always for the same side suppose the defendant if so the amenability to it would be a motive with the plaintiff to agree to almost any arbitration but it would be just the reverse with the defendant the despotic power which the law gives to the husband may be a reason to make the wife assent to any compromise by which power is practically shared between the two but it cannot be the reason why the husband does that there is always among decently conducted people a practical compromise though one of them at least is under no physical or moral necessity of making it shows that the natural motives which lead to a voluntary adjustment of the united life of two persons in a manner acceptable to both do on the whole excepting unfavorable cases prevail the matter is certainly not improved by laying down as an ordinance of law that the superstructure of free government shall be raised upon a legal basis of despotism on one side and subjection on the other and that every concession which the despot makes may at his mere pleasure and without any warning be recalled besides that no freedom is worth much when held on so precarious a tenure its conditions are not likely to be the most equitable when the law throws so prodigious a weight into one scale when the adjustment rests between two persons one of whom is declared to be entitled to everything the other not only entitled to nothing except during the good pleasure of the first but under the strongest moral and religious obligation not to rebel under any excess of oppression a pertinacious adversary pushed to extremities may say that husbands indeed are willing to be reasonable and to make fair concessions to their partners without being compelled to it but that wives are not that if allowed any rights of their own they will acknowledge no rights at all in any one else and never will yield in anything unless they can be compelled by the man's mere authority to yield in everything 
This would have been said by many persons some generations ago, when satires on women were in vogue, and men thought it a clever thing to insult women for being what men made them. But it will be said by no one now who is worth replying to. It is not the doctrine of the present day that women are less susceptible of good feeling and consideration for those with whom they are united by the strongest ties than men are. On the contrary, we are perpetually told that women are better than men by those who are totally opposed to treating them as if they were as good, so that the saying has passed into a piece of tiresome cant, intended to put a complimentary face upon an injury, and resembling those celebrations of royal clemency which, according to Gulliver, the king of Lilliput always prefixed to his most sanguinary decrees. If women are better than men in anything, it is surely in individual self-sacrifice for those of their own family. But I lay little stress on this, so long as they are universally taught that they are born and created for self-sacrifice. I believe that equality of rights would abate the exaggerated self-abnegation which is the present artificial ideal of feminine character, and that a good woman would not be more self-sacrificing than the best man. But, on the other hand, men would be much more unselfish and self-sacrificing than at present, because they would no longer be taught to worship their own will as such a grand thing that it is actually the law for another rational being. There is nothing which men so easily learn as this self-worship. All privileged persons and all privileged classes have had it. The more we descend in the scale of humanity, the intenser it is, and most of all in those who are not, and can never expect to be, raised above anyone except an unfortunate wife and children. The honorable exceptions are proportionally fewer than in the case of almost any other human infirmity. Philosophy and religion, instead of keeping it in check, are generally suborned to defend it, and nothing controls it but that practical feeling of the equality of human beings, which is the theory of Christianity, but which Christianity will never practically teach while it sanctions institutions grounded on an arbitrary preference of one human being over another. There are, no doubt, women, as there are men, whom equality of consideration will not satisfy, with whom there is no peace while any will or wish is regarded but their own. Such persons are a proper subject for the law of divorce. They are only fit to live alone, and no human beings ought to be compelled to associate their lives with them. But the legal subordination tends to make such characters among women more, rather than less, frequent. If the man exerts his whole power, the woman is of course crushed. But if she is treated with indulgence, and permitted to assume power, there was no rule to set limits to her encroachments. The law, not determining her rights, but theoretically allowing her none at all, practically declares that the measure of what she has a right to is what she can contrive to get. The equality of married persons before the law is not only the sole mode in which that particular relation can be made consistent with justice to both sides and conducive to the happiness of both, but it is the only means of rendering the daily life of mankind, in any high sense, a school of moral cultivation. 
though the truth may not be felt or generally acknowledged for generations to come the only school of genuine moral sentiment is society between equals the moral education of mankind has hitherto emanated chiefly from the law of force and is adapted almost solely to the relations which force creates in the less advanced states of society people hardly recognize any relation with their equals to be an equal is to be an enemy society from its highest place to its lowest is one long chain or rather ladder where every individual is either above or below his nearest neighbor and wherever he does not command he must obey existing moralities accordingly are mainly fitted to a relation of command and obedience yet command and obedience are but unfortunate necessities of human life society inequality is its normal state already in modern life and more and more as it progressively improves command and obedience become exceptional facts in life equal association its general rule the morality of the first ages rested on the obligation to submit to power that of the ages next following on the right of the weak to the forbearance and protection of the strong how much longer is one form of society in life to content itself with the morality made for another we have had the morality of submission and the morality of chivalry and generosity the time is now come for the morality of justice whenever in former ages any approach has been made to society in equality justice has asserted its claims as the foundation of virtue it was thus in the free republics of antiquity but even in the best of these the equals were limited to the free male citizens slaves women and the unfranchised residents were under the law of force the joint influence of roman civilization and christianity obliterated these distinctions and in theory if only partially in practice declared the claims of the human being as such to be paramount to those of sex class or social position the barriers which had begun to be leveled were raised again by the northern conquests and the whole of modern history consists of the slow process by which they have since been wearing away we are entering into an order of things in which justice will again be the primary virtue grounded as before on equal but now also on sympathetic association having its root no longer in the instinct of equals for self-protection but in a cultivated sympathy between them and no one being now left out but in equal measure being extended to all it is no novelty that mankind do not distinctly foresee their own changes and that their sentiments are adapted to past not to the coming ages to see the futurity of the species has always been the privilege of the intellectual elite or of those who have learnt from them to have the feelings of that futurity has been the distinction and usually the martyrdom of a still rarer elite institutions books education society all go on training human beings for the old long after the new has come much more when it is only coming but the true virtue of human beings is fitness to live together as equals claiming nothing for themselves but what they as freely concede to everyone else regarding command of any kind as an exceptional necessity and in all cases a temporary one 
and preferring, whenever possible, the society of those with whom leading and following can be alternate and reciprocal. To these virtues, nothing in life, as at present constituted, gives cultivation by exercise. The family is a school of despotism, in which the virtues of despotism, but also its vices, are largely nourished. Citizenship, in free countries, is partly a school of society inequality, but citizenship fills only a small place in modern life, and does not come near the daily habits or inmost sentiments. The family, justly constituted, would be the real school of the virtues of freedom. It is sure to be a sufficient one of everything else. It will always be a school of obedience for the children, of command for the parents. What is needed is that it should be a school of sympathy in equality, of living together in love, without power on one side or obedience on the other. This it ought to be between the parents. It would then be an exercise of those virtues which each requires to fit them for all other association, and a model to the children of the feelings and conduct which their temporary training by means of obedience is designed to render habitual and therefore natural to them. The moral training of mankind will never be adapted to the conditions of the life for which all other human progress is a preparation until they practice in the family the same moral rule which is adapted to the normal constitution of human society. Any sentiment of freedom which can exist in a man whose nearest and dearest intimacies are with those of whom he is absolute master is not the genuine or Christian love of freedom, but what the love of freedom generally was in the ancients and in the Middle Ages, an intense feeling of the dignity and importance of his own personality, making him disdain a yoke for himself, of which he has no abhorrence whatever in the abstract, but which he is abundantly ready to impose on others for his own interest or glorification. I readily admit, and it is the very foundation of my hopes, that numbers of married people, even under the present law, in the higher classes of England probably a great majority, live in the spirit of a just law of equality. Laws never would be improved if there were not numerous persons whose moral sentiments are better than the existing laws. Such persons ought to support the principles here advocated, of which the only object is to make all other married couples similar to what these are now. But persons even of considerable moral worth, unless they are also thinkers, are very ready to believe that laws or practices, the evils of which they have not personally experienced, do not produce any evils, but, if seeming to be generally approved of, probably do good, and that it is wrong to object to them. It would, however, be a great mistake in such married people to suppose, because the legal conditions of the tie which unites them do not occur to their thoughts once in a twelve-month, and because they live and feel in all respects as if they were legally equals, that the same is the case with all other married couples, wherever the husband is not a notorious ruffian. To suppose this would be to show equal ignorance of human nature and of fact. The less fit a man is for the possession of power, the less likely to be allowed to exercise it over any person with that person's voluntary consent, the more does he hug himself in the consciousness of the power the law gives him, exact its legal rights to the utmost point which custom, the custom of men like himself, will tolerate, and take pleasure in using the power, 
merely to enliven the agreeable sense of possessing it. What is more, in the most naturally brutal and morally uneducated part of the lower classes, the legal slavery of the woman, and something in the merely physical subjection to their will as an instrument, causes them to feel a sort of disrespect and contempt towards their own wife, which they do not feel towards any other woman, or any other human being, with whom they come in contact, and which makes her seem to them an appropriate subject for any kind of indignity. Let an acute observer of the signs of feeling, who has the requisite opportunities, judge for himself whether this is not the case, and if he finds that it is, let him not wonder at any amount of disgust and indignation that can be felt against institutions which lead naturally to this depraved state of the human mind. We shall be told, perhaps, that religion imposes the duty of obedience, as every established fact which is too bad to admit of any other defense is always presented to us as an injunction of religion. The Church, it is very true, enjoins it in her formularies, but it would be difficult to derive any such injunction from Christianity. We are told that St. Paul said, Wives obey your husbands, but he also said, Slaves obey your masters. It was not St. Paul's business, nor was it consistent with his object, the propagation of Christianity, to incite anyone to rebellion against existing laws. The Apostle's acceptance of all social institutions as he found them is no more to be construed as a disapproval of attempts to improve them at the proper time than his declaration, the powers that be are ordained of God, gives his sanction to military despotism, and to that alone, as the Christian form of political government, or commands passive obedience to it. To pretend that Christianity was intended to stereotype existing forms of government and society, and protect them against change, is to reduce it to the level of Islamism, or Brahmanism. It is precisely because Christianity has not done this, that it has been the religion of the progressive portion of mankind, and Islamism, Brahmanism, etc., have been those of the stationary portions, or rather, for there is no such thing as a really stationary society, of the declining portions. There have been abundance of people, in all ages of Christianity, who tried to make it something of the same kind, to convert us into a sort of Christian Mussulmans, with the Bible for a Koran, prohibiting all improvement, and great has been their power, and many have had to sacrifice their lives in resisting them. But they have been resisted, and the resistance has made us what we are, and will yet make us what we are to be. After what has been said respecting the obligation of obedience, it is almost superfluous to say anything concerning the more special point included in the general one, a woman's right to her own property. For I need not hope that this treatise can make any impression upon those who need anything to convince them that a woman's inheritance or gains ought to be as much her own after marriage as before. The rule is simple. Whatever would be the husband's or wife's, if they were not married, should be under their exclusive control during marriage, which need not interfere with the power to tie up property by settlement in order to preserve it for children. Some people are sentimentally shocked at the idea of a separate interest in money matters as inconsistent with the ideal fusion of two lives into one. For my own part, I am one of the strongest supporters of community of goods, when resulting from an entire unity of feeling in the owners, 
which makes all things common between them. But I have no relish for a community of goods resting on the doctrine that what is mine is yours, but what is yours is not mine. And I should prefer to decline entering into such a compact with anyone, though I were myself the person to profit by it. This particular injustice and oppression to women, which is, to common apprehensions, more obvious than all the rest, admits of remedy without interfering with any other mischiefs, and there can be little doubt that it will be one of the earliest remedied. Already, in many of the new and several of the old states of the American Confederation, provisions have been inserted even in the written constitutions, securing to women equality of rights in this respect, and thereby improving materially the position in the marriage relation of those women at least who have property, by leaving them one instrument of power which they have not signed away, and preventing also the scandalous abuse of the marriage institution, which is perpetrated when a man entraps a girl into marrying him without a settlement, for the sole purpose of getting possession of her money. When the support of the family depends, not on property, but on earnings, the common arrangement, by which the man earns the income, and the wife superintends the domestic expenditure, seems to me, in general, the most suitable division of labor between the two persons. If, in addition to the physical suffering of bearing children, and the whole responsibility of their care and education in early years, the wife undertakes the careful and economical application of the husband's earnings to the general comfort of the family, she takes not only her fair share, but usually the larger share, of the bodily and mental exertion required by their joint existence. If she undertakes any additional portion, it seldom relieves her from this, but only prevents her from performing it properly. The care which she is herself disabled from taking of the children in the household, nobody else takes. Those of the children who do not die grow up as they best can, and the management of the household is likely to be so bad as even in point of economy to be a great drawback from the value of the wife's earnings. In another wise, just state of things, it is not, therefore, I think, a desirable custom that the wife should contribute by her labor to the income of the family. In an unjust state of things, her doing so may be useful to her, by making her of more value in the eyes of the man who is legally her master. But, on the other hand, it enables him still farther to abuse his power, by forcing her to work, and leaving the support of the family to her exertions, while he spends most of his time in drinking and idleness. The power of earning is essential to the dignity of a woman, if she has not independent property. But if marriage were an equal contract, not implying the obligation of obedience, if the connection were no longer enforced to the oppression of those to whom it is purely a mischief, but a separation on just terms, I do not now speak of a divorce, could be obtained by any woman who is morally entitled to it, and if she would then find all honorable employments as freely open to her as to men, it would not be necessary for her protection that during marriage she should make this particular use of her faculties. Like a man, when he chooses a profession, so, when a woman marries, it may in general be understood that she makes choice of the management of a household, and the bringing up of a family, as the first call upon her exertions, during as many years of her life as may be required for the purpose, and that she renounces not all other objects and occupations, but all which are not consistent with the requirements of this. 
the actual exercise, in a habitual or systematic manner, of outdoor occupations, or such as cannot be carried on at home, would, by this principle, be practically interdicted to the greater number of married women. But the utmost latitude ought to exist for the adaptation of general rules to individual suitabilities, and there ought to be nothing to prevent faculties exceptionally adapted to any other pursuit from obeying their vocation notwithstanding marriage, due provision being made for supplying otherwise any falling short which might become inevitable in her full performance of the ordinary functions of mistress of a family. These things, if one's opinion were rightly directed on the subject, might with perfect safety be left to be regulated by opinion, without any interference of law. End of chapter 2, part 2